From his first job flipping burgers at McDonald's and delivering the Washington Post, Craig Willett counts only one and a half years of his adult life working for someone else. Welcome to the Biz Sherpa Podcast with your host, Craig Willett, founder of several multi-million dollar businesses and trusted advisor to other business owners. He's giving back to help business owners and aspiring entrepreneurs achieve fulfillment, enhance their lives, and create enduring wealth. The Biz Sherpa. This is Craig Willett, The Biz Sherpa. I'm grateful that you joined me today. I have a real special guest, somebody I've known for quite a while, and I admire what he's done. He not only started Adoption.com, but he's kind of the secret behind a lot of other people's success as well. And he just launched Monetization Nation. I'm grateful to welcome, as a special guest today, Nathan William to the Sherpa's Cave. Welcome, Nathan. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm glad you take the time to do it. I know you're busy because you've got an everyday podcast yourself, seven days a week, right? Yeah, and not just a podcast, but a YouTube channel and a blog and some social channels to go with it. Right, and I think you're still helping the people you sold adoption.com to as well. Yes, extensively. Yeah, so I I want to get your passion and understand your passion for business ownership and being an entrepreneur. You know, you started adoption.com, but it's not just any old dot-com business. What was it that caused you to, at a young age, start that business? So I was a missionary. I served two years in Brazil. And while I was doing that, I kind of fell in love with the street children. And my mission was a voluntary service experience. I didn't get paid anything to do it. And as the kids would come up on the street and ask me for money, I would give them the change out of my pocket. But as a volunteer, it would quickly run out. And as I, I came back, I vowed I would do something to make a lasting difference in their lives. And, and so I started a Brazilian adoption program and that kind of morphed and evolved into adoption.com. Wow. What a great reason behind it. How did that translate into the business world, having a kind of a benefactor mentality, um, which I think every business owner should have anyway, you want to benefit your clients, but you really wanted to make a change for in the lives of people forever. How does that translate in today's business world? Yeah. So I'm a big believer in a concept called social entrepreneurship. And I've, I've taught that course at Brigham Young University, Idaho, and I'm extremely passionate about that course. And I believe that business is one of the best vehicles for causing the social change we want. So often people sit back and they expect government to do everybody, to do everything. And, and they expect somebody else to, to solve these problems. And I believe that business is an amazing vehicle that can be created to solve those kinds of problems like adoption.com. You know, the government doesn't have to give a grant to do something that the private sector can do and, and fund through sponsorships and, and uh, a lot of other more effective ways than, than just handing it over to the government. So social entrepreneurship's not just being an expert on Facebook. It's about changing society. Yeah, that's right. And there's lots of great examples of companies that have done it well. Think of Tom's Shoes, right? For, for every pair of shoes that you buy, they donate a pair of shoes to someone that needs it. Or Bomba's socks, right? Every, every pair of socks you buy, they donate a pair to someone that needs it. So there's a lot of great companies that are employing social entrepreneurship to help change the world. 
Uh, I think that's great. Well, now you've been the secret behind success of other businesses as well. And so you've watched not only, not only launch businesses yourself, but you've helped other people launch them. What three tips would you offer to our viewers today that would be secrets to success in launching a business? Sure. And, and I've only been a part of success. I've, I've helped behind the scenes, but these successes- You're modest, so I'm going to go ahead and give you more credit than you, you'll take. But those successes were, were the result of many people coming together. Um, so three, three secrets. The first secret is, is the concept of the tectonic shift. And um, as, I, as I started working on my book, and I looked back at the home runs that we've hit for my companies and for other people's companies over the years, it was really interesting that none of those home runs were doing the same thing. A lot of consultants, they, they figure out how to do one thing and then they just do it over and over again, like a cookie cutter. And none of mine were that way. And it kind of perplexed me for a little bit. And I discovered that what the what the consistent theme was, was the, this concept of tectonic shifts. So where you have tectonic plates and they move against each other, you can have massive destruction like earthquakes or volcanoes, but you can also have massive growth like mountain formation where, where you live, you're surrounded by beautiful mountains that were caused by tectonic plates moving. And, and the same earthquakes here once in a while as well. <laughs> That's right, unfortunately. And, and the same thing happens in the business world. We are constantly in the middle of these tectonic plates that are moving and they can cause massive destruction or massive growth for businesses. In, in our careers, you and I have seen numerous tectonic shifts, the, the shift from, from uh, bricks and mortar business models to internet business models, or the tectonic shift from yellow pages to the search engines, or tectonic plates from, from desktop computers to smartphones. And, and the list goes on and on. There's so many of these. And the businesses that seized these tectonic shifts were able to catapult their growth. And the businesses that did not effectively seize them, for many of them, it, it caused their destruction. Or at the minimum, it caused them to lose huge, huge amounts of market share. Think about the the Sears and Amazon story, right? And when Amazon started, Sears was the behemoth that kind of owned the space, right? And, or that or Walmart. And you, you look how, how at- How do Sears. you recognize those though? So if I'm out there and I'm saying, all right, what's the next shift? How do I yeah. not get caught? One, being the old dying breed, or how do I not identify the new up and coming? Yeah, so that's a great question. So- so that's what monetization nation is all about is we are helping people identify the shifts that are happening today and teach them how to effectively leverage and implement those shifts to catapult the growth of their business and to protect their business from being disrupted by the young upstart companies who are. Wow. That's, that's cool. what my book is about too. I'm, I'm writing a book that, that, goes through eight or nine of the top tectonic shifts we're dealing with today. And what's the working title on that book so we can look for it? It's called Monetization. Awesome. So what does that mean when we think of monetization? I mean, is that all about making money? What, what is that about? The concept of monetization is taking the assets we have and effectively turning them into 
profits. And a lot of times people think assets and they think, you know, how much money I have in the bank or how much real estate I own. But the primary assets that I'm talking about here generally are not those two things. Um, they're, they're generally uh, things like intellectual property we own or followers we might have on social media or our email list, or it, it might be expertise we have in a certain given area or uh, a, a unique process to do something or machinery we own. There, there's so many different assets that businesses don't often even consider as assets and helping businesses kind of marry those assets together with these tectonic shifts. And that's usually where the magic happens. Oh, that's pretty cool. So if I'm thinking of starting a business, I would want to look at what kind of expertise I have, what kind of, uh, expert knowledge, but also uh, ability to influence others to be able to make change or make or a difference. that you have or reputation that you have or relationships that you have. There's lots of different ways you can find those assets. And almost every business has a lot of assets that they're not even considering are assets. So in your book or in your podcast and YouTube channel, you help people identify by giving examples? How do you help people identify what those unused or untapped assets are? Yeah. So for every business, it's different. It's a lot of the, I doing it on a customized individual basis. I'm doing one-on-one and consulting work. Um, in the book, I more have to explain and, and the podcast and, and blog, I just have to explain the high level concepts, but the customization at this point, it just happens on, the, on a one-to-one basis. Oh, okay. And how do you, I mean, what's your driving force behind this monetization nation concept? So when I was young in my career, about 25 years old, um, I was the CEO of a publicly traded internet software company. And that was right when the dot-com bubble burst. And I had... I had a commitment for funding and it evaporated. And at that time, we we were not to profitability. And I lost $11 million in one day on the stock market from my all from my interest, my ownership in this company. And, and I learned the painful lesson because if I had gotten my company to profitability fast enough, then that that dot-com bubble burst would not have devastated us, right? We would have, we would have become masters of our own destiny at that point. Right. You, and in the sense that maybe you wouldn't have required the funding or the funding might have been more secure because of that's your right. profitability. Either of those situations would have saved us there. But because I hadn't gotten to profitability fast enough, I, I didn't have that option. Okay. And, and so I became... Uh, a heat-seeking missile for <laughs> for learning digital monetization, right? And and I learned how important that was, and and I've been able to help other businesses do it, and I've been able to apply it in my businesses, and and that, that's really my aha moment where where that became important to me. Okay, specifically, then, what kind of opportunities do you see out there? for business owners in digital monetization and tectonic shifts that are taking place currently? Sure. So, so first, let's talk about what are some of the tectonic shifts going on. And then the specific opportunities come by 
taking a tectonic shift and marrying it with an asset, right? So, so talking about tectonic shifts, I believe the biggest tectonic shift that is happening today is the, the concept of credibility marketing. So it used to be, even 20 years ago, businesses would buy a bunch of advertising. Even 10 years ago, businesses would buy a bunch of advertising, and then they would use that reach to tell the world how awesome they are. That concept does not work anymore. Thinking of in- Super Bowl ads or... Yeah. Okay. That's a very ineffective concept for the, for the business to be the voice to tell the world how amazing they are. Instead, you look at what's driving business and maybe as much as 70% of our customers are going to look at reviews before they even come and talk to us, right? Um, they're looking for other people to tell them that we are credible before they come and trust us. There's lots of ways we can build credibility from, from video testimonials of clients to reviews, to influencer marketing, to word of mouth marketing, and, and learning how to uh, communicate with our customers through much more credible voices is, is uh, becoming an essential element of business today. And that's the concept of credibility marketing. Oh, okay. That's great. And so how do you mine or find or develop those types of reviews and get people, when you're a new business owner, how do you get people to give you a review and to help you uh, gain that credibility? Yeah. So at the beginning, a lot of people are giving away free products as as is allowed by the review platforms or highly uh, discounted uh, products, or they are giving um, you know, buy the first one and I'll give you a second one free. You have to look carefully at what the rules are of the reviews platform. You definitely don't want to violate those rules and, and get yourself in hot water. But um, yes, the, those are some of the effective strategies that they use. Is they, they, they build the reviews by, by giving discounted or add-on products. And, and not to get too basic, but maybe for some of our listeners and probably for me, what are some of the reviews platforms that you think are effective or that people should look at to to use? Sure. So it depends on which industry you're in because there's different platforms that have reviews of different things. Um, the best reviews platform generally for businesses right now is is Google and and being able to use use Google and get your reviews on Google Maps and Google My Business and those kinds of things. That That is the, the most effective for most businesses. If you are a restaurant, for example, Yelp is a really good uh, platform to also be on. Um, and then if you're within a specific industry, you know, it's really good to go, to go look for this, the reviews platform specific for your industry. For example, if you're a software company, Captera is a really good platform um, to uh, to build your reviews on. So really, as a business owner, I'm going to be looking at what do my users or where can my users go to learn about me? And then I want to target creating an audience there of people who use the product and can give honest and, and valuable reviews, right? That's right. And you want to always make sure they're honest. Don't ever stuff it with fake reviews. Uh, a good way to find the right platforms, the, re- the right reviews platforms for your industry is if you're an established company, go to Google and type your company name and then the word reviews after it and just see what comes up. 
right? And that'll give you a good idea of, of where the traffic is going for reviews for you. If you're not an established company, the best way to do that is go find your top competitor who is established, type their name and the word reviews, and then you can find out what customers in your space, where, where they're going for reviews. Oh, that's interesting. Now, I have a question for you, and I don't know if this is something yeah. you wanted to focus on today, but I can't help but ask this question. And that is, sure. what if you get a bad review? How do you handle that? Sure. So, I mean, because before you answer that question, I mean, you're putting yourself highly vulnerable when you do ask for reviews. And so you want to stand behind your product. And if something doesn't work right, what do you do about that? That's right. That is a great question. So a lot of companies are real concerned about that. And they're so concerned that they don't even get into the review space because they're so afraid someone's going to say something bad about them. There are a lot of stories of companies that have have done a really good job of reviews, of managing the negative reviews. And anytime you have 200 customers, no matter how good of a job you're doing, um, someone's not going to be happy with you. It is impossible to, to make everybody happy. The first concept to understand is when you have perfect five-star reviews, 100% five-star reviews, you actually lose credibility because it's like, it's really? like when, yeah, when a, when a company does a video and the model is too perfect, they're too beautiful and, and you just know it's not real. It's not a real person. And that video actually loses credibility in today's world. It's, it's the YouTube effect, right? Companies are trying to create videos with less than perfect models and less than perfect lighting and less than perfect um, camera. You don't want 12 camera angles and a, a drone overhead, <laughs> right? You actually lose credibility when you do that. It's not real. It's not authentic. Wow. That's interesting. And, I had never thought about that. Yeah. And so when a company has hundred reviews and they're all five stars. What is the first thing you're going to think when you see that? Yeah, I, I think, boy, you know, they're perfect or these people aren't being honest. Yeah. A lot of people think they're stuffing the ballot box, right? If you had an election and everybody voted for one candidate, the first question is, okay, this election was rigged, right? Right. So you need a certain amount of of a dissenting voice going on um, so that, so that people believe that it's, it's really a real set of reviews happening. So that's point number one. I guess I look at that because, you know, I, I'll do that for a hotel or for a restaurant. And sometimes it's nice to see, especially in the case of a hotel, if they respond to those reviews and apologize yeah. and, and try to make it better. Cause sometimes those negative reviews actually, point out some def deficiencies, but if they're responsive to it, that gives me comfort anyway. So Yes, that's right. And that's the second point is a negative review, if you do it right, is a platform to showcase um, great customer service, right? Show that you listen, show that you're trying to improve it, apologize, right? Um, that takes a lot of effort though, doesn't it? I mean, it you have to be on top of every less than perfect review. Yeah, so so businesses should be should be implementing systems and processes that they are immediately responding to all negative reviews. I interviewed Craig 
or sorry, I interviewed Carl Hewish on my show recently, and he still told a great story of he and his wife. They were at a hotel and the air conditioner wasn't working. So they had opened the window and the room was filled with mosquitoes. And it was at a really nice luxury hotel. And his wife went in and gave a negative review. And literally within, I remember it was five minutes or 10 minutes, um, there was someone at their door saying, you know, you weren't satisfied and left a negative review. What can we do to make it right? Right. They were monitoring it so closely. They, They didn't deal with it the next day when it was too late. They dealt with it at the moment. So they had a chance to fix it. Wow, that's great. So really, you need to be on top of that in, in today's world if you're going to do the reviews. So is that right. another reason people shy away from it? Maybe because it takes a lot to manage it? Um, I, I haven't heard that. I, it's worth it. It's worth the effort you have to put into it. Um, but the, the bigger issue is just the fear that someone might say something negative. Okay. And I, I think you just have to embrace it. And I think you just have to show people that we make mistakes and some things we can't fix, but we're going to do the best we possibly can. I think those are great insights. And I think that's really helpful to our listeners today. I can't help but ask the question though, as I, as you told me about losing $11 million in one day, I mean, that's rather de- demoralizing, if not depressing, right? And it brings you to reality. And you, I guess you became a heat seeking missile. So you responded to it and say, I'm not going to lay down, but it begs the question of, is business ownership for everyone? And if not, what does it take to be a business owner? Because you've done it again and again. Yeah. So I think that obviously entrepreneurs have to have the vision and, and that's an important part. But even more than that, I think entrepreneurs need to have high self-efficacy. And self-efficacy is, is the belief in their, themselves that they can solve the problem. I feel like as an entrepreneur, I'm just constantly solving problems. I'm, I'm going from one problem to the next and, and doing my best to solve it. And, and if you're good at problem solving and, and you've got that visionary piece, you might be a good entrepreneur. If you don't like solving problems and you don't have a high confidence in yourself that you can solve problems, maybe entrepreneurship is not meant for you. Doesn't mean you have to be good at math, but maybe you're good at p- puzzle building. So, right. I mean, you you know how to go find that problem, right? If your business requires good math and you're not good at math, you at least know how to solve that problem and find the person who is good at math who can help you with that piece. Right. I like that idea. I, I interviewed a guy, Mark Crockett, the other day, and he said the same thing. He's doing his second business and he's been a management consultant for McKinsey most of his career before he launched his most recent software company, Agreed. But he said the same thing. He said, you have to be a big problem solver. How do you know if you're a good problem solver? <laughs> uh, I, think, I think when I first started my business, I was not a good problem solver. And, and I would go ask other people how to solve problems. And I think the light bulb aha moment for me came when I realized I could go to Google and I can figure out how to do anything. (laughs) If I'm having a problem and I don't know how to fix this WordPress something, I I don't have to ask anyone else. Google empowered me. And, And just that I was willing to go do that research and figure it out on my own kind of opened up a whole new world for me. 
Wow, that's great. I've always said, you know, for me, there's a point at which, and you use the word self-efficacy, but there's a point at which your confidence and your belief in what you can do to transform or make other lives better becomes greater and your confidence in yourself to do that, regardless of what obstacles you face, overrides and becomes greater than the fear factor. And that yeah. allows you to launch and step forward, even though maybe you didn't think you were a good problem solver and maybe that was pointed out to you at some point. You, were, you became a better problem solver as you kept guess, moving down your entrepreneurship career. That's right. And I guess to further answer that question, how does, an, how does a potential entrepreneur know if they are a good problem solver? And I, I think it comes down to two things. Am I willing to learn, right? Am I willing to go read the books? Am I willing to go listen to the podcasts? Am I willing to go get the mentors to help me figure it out? Am I willing to invest what it takes to figure out what I don't know. And if I'm not willing to do that, then I probably am not a problem solver. And then the second one is, am I willing to pay the price to go do the research? And if I'm not willing to do that, I'm probably not a problem solver and I'm probably not going to be a good entrepreneur. And be willing to pay the price in that you forego income for a period of time also, I think, as an entrepreneur, especially in the startup phases. Has that been your experience? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and forego the sleep and forego the time doing the things I would want to do. You've got to, you've got to either have the money to do it, or you've got to have the sweat equity to do it to, you know, to figure it out yourself. Yeah. And both or both. And it's yes. interesting because a lot of people say, oh, I want to start a business so I can make money. And I think the number two reason I usually hear is I want freedom. And it depends on what they mean by freedom, but most entrepreneurs would say in their first three years of business, they're not sitting at the beach every day or yeah. two days a week. They're really working six, seven days a week and and the hours can be innumerable. Is that right? Absolutely. And, and if you're not willing to do that, you're probably not ready to be an entrepreneur. I don't want to discourage anyone. I like to encourage people to give it a try, right? But I also think that you have to be realistic because if you don't, if you aren't prepared to do that and make those commitments, then it will be a struggle and you want to have a positive success as a business owner. Now, since you started your first business, how has the business landscape changed? I mean, what kind of things have happened over the last, how many years has it been? 20? Yeah. Um, 24 years since 24 I started years. my first business. Yeah. Uh, it is so different. And and I kind of define that difference in tectonic shifts, right? You look at the sh tectonic shift to the internet and the tectonic shift to mobile and the tectonic shift to search engines. And there, there's been so many of those kinds of things, the tectonic uh, shift to... Payment methods and currencies. I mean, we're yeah. seeing it today. The tectonic shift to social networks. There, there's so many of those. And then you look at the tectonic shifts we're in the middle of today, you know, that not just the ones that happened in the past, but the ones that are, are rocking the entrepreneur's world today. And, um, and it feels like the rate of, of those tectonic shifts is even accelerating. It feels like that's even one of the biggest tectonic shifts is that more tectonic shifts are happening faster. That's interesting. They're accelerating and at an ever-increasing pace. So given that and that you define it based on tectonic shifts, how do you define, and being a social entrepreneur, how do you define success? What does that mean to you, success? <laughs> so 
So I have the things that matter most to me, you know, my, my family and my faith and my health and my social contribution, right? Those are, those are really at the core of what matters most to me. And success cannot be success without all of those things being a success, right? Success that is contrary to my faith, that is against my ethical beliefs, would not be success. And obviously, I'm not perfect, but I'm trying, right? And, and that's, the, that's the definition of success is where you can achieve all those things that matter. Right. And so how do you measure it? Because on the one hand, you say, and, and, and I agree, it takes a lot of time. In the initial years of a starting a, a business or an enterprise, it's going to take up a lot of time. And so if family and faith are important, how do you make time for all that and still get the rest? And your health is important, right? So you mentioned all the key elements. How do you measure that and try to maintain a sort of equilibrium? Yeah, so... I don't think it's possible to always have that balance. I think we go from focus to focus to focus instead of trying to juggle all those things at the exact same moment. Um, so sometimes we're going to be out of balance a little bit in one area and and we're going to have to sacrifice some of the social things that we want to do and, and pay the price. Um, and that's the definition of sacrifice. You give up something that you want less in exchange for something you want more. And because you're willing to sacrifice, you can have something amazing. Like you, you're, you're about to leave for an extended period of time to, to provide service for your faith. And you're able to do that financially because you sacrificed to build your business. And you now, because you may be focused a lot building your business in the early years, you now are able to step away from your business and have the financial resources you need that you can, um, that you can kind of be out of balance in the faith area of your life, right? <laughs> And right. So you kind of go from focus to focus to focus instead of trying to do everything at the same moment. Pay the price for my prior sins, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but all kidding aside, you're right. There comes a point at which you have to set some kind of target. I mean, they're unlimited. The, the amount of money anyone can make is unlimited when you really look at it in, in the economy in the United States of America. But you have to kind of define what's sufficient for your needs. How much is enough? And, and then what does that allow you to do? And did you define enough? It's different for everybody based on their objectives, right? If my objective is um, to later go serve a mission for my church, then I'm going to set aside money and time and have a calendar in my life where I'm checking in regularly to make sure I'm setting aside those resources. So I, I think you're absolutely right. You, we can get out of balance per se, but we have to be aware of if we're trying to juggle four balls, family, faith, health, and business, sometimes one of those balls may sit down for a rest and you're juggling three, but you got to pick the other one up at some point. Yep. Yeah. And then the other ball would be social contribution, right? How we want to give back. Right. And I think that's a big one. So what motivates you that way? So you did adoption and you may have satisfied, I don't know, because you're still working some in it and you may love it so much, but how do you know you're giving back to society? Yeah, I am. 
And it comes back to that focus. We all can't do everything, right? We all can't help every cause. But I think God helps certain causes to resonate with us. There's certain causes that when we hear the story, it just it pricks our heart and we feel driven to, to get involved and do something about it. And, you know, the, the, the cause of, of adoption and orphan care just has, has always really resonated with me. And, and the, the cause of missionary work just really resonates with me. I, I would do missionary work every day for the rest of my life. If I could provide for my family and, you know, uh, that just is very, those two causes just, just really motivate me. And so I think the first step is, is really identifying, not trying to make a difference for good in the whole world with every cause, because that's impossible. Yeah. And, and we really won't make much of a difference. I think the, the most important part is understanding which cause matters to us. You know, with Tom's shoes, they really cared about shoes for the, for the poor, right? And they focused on one issue and they've made a ridiculous amount of difference because they focused on one issue. So I think there's a lot of power in focusing on what God helps to resonate. And by doing that, we'll make a lot better difference than spreading ourselves out too broadly. Let's say that I'm not the next Tom's shoes, but I'm a small business startup. How do I know if I'm making a difference? I mean, how many, do you measure it in lives? Do you measure it in, I mean, how do you measure that? That's a really good question. And I think it's, it's different for every company, but I think if we, if we let it happen to us and we're not being conscious about it, the amount of good we can do will not the full measure of good we can do will not happen. I think the most important for the thing for that small company isn't to say, how do we measure the good we're doing? I think instead it's for the company to sit down and say, what good do we want to do? So the question is, is, what is our contribution? What is our contribution? And, and by making the plan and contributing consistently to that plan, whatever it is, they will make a lot more good they will do a lot more good than trying to measure the good they're already doing. That's great. I, I like that. I mean, because that's one thing we can control. We can't control the effect of what we do, but we can control our effort to affect change. Yep. Our contribution to society. Great. Well, you know, I imagine you had different ideas of different businesses and how they would perform when you started. And what, what was your greatest surprise that you had when you started a business that was unexpected? My greatest surprise that was unexpected. I guess that's a definition of a surprise. So it is unexpected, yeah. but <laughs> I don't know okay. if it's a challenge. I don't know if it's just you had expectations of things being different than they were. In my first business, it took a lot more money and a lot more time, and a lot more effort than I was expecting. It didn't mean we were failing. It it just meant I, I've heard it, it in the the BYU MBA program, they, they teach the rule of threes, right? That it takes three time, three times longer than you expect. It takes three times more money than you expect. And you make about a third the profit is what you expect. And if you can weather that storm, then you probably will be successful. And that was probably pretty true with my business. It took a lot more effort. We got there and we became the world's most used adoption site. It just took a lot of effort and a lot of time to get there. And I think that's true with most businesses don't don't give up 
when it takes longer than you expect. Just be willing to persevere and have the grit to just keep pushing it through. Because realize most of your competitors aren't going to have the grit you have. Right. And that can be how you differentiate yourself. I've always said it takes three to five years before you start really feeling comfortable that things are stable in your business. Yeah. And, you know, we live in a faster paced business and some of my businesses have been required large amounts of capital. And so they may take a little bit longer, but you're right. Whatever the time horizon is, make sure you have the stamina to commit to a little bit longer than what you think it might be. And sometimes that might be a factor of three, like you said. So I like that. Um, what's the thing that you take home at the end of the day with all the different things that you're doing that brings you satisfaction that you can go home at night and say, you know, I feel good. Um, Despite all the troubles that you may face during a given day. I love my family. I, I find enormous satisfaction in being a father and a husband more than anything else. And God has really blessed me with an amazing family, much more than I deserve. And the satisfaction I find is, is being able to be there for them, either with time or being able to financially provide the things they need to know that as they need college, right, we can pay for the, the education that they need or, or a wedding or, you know, being able to make sure that my, my family has what they need to thrive um, and, and that I can spend time with them and, and uh, just live this adventure of life with them brings me more satisfaction than anything else. I think that's a great thing. You know, <clears throat> we all need something that grounds us. And I think family is one of the greatest things that can ground us. And I love your passion that you have there and the emotion that you show for your family. And I think it keeps us from getting distracted. It can be a secret to be, to prevent us from becoming distracted by the trappings of success or or um, other things in life. So I think that's great. Now, you can't come on the Biz Sherpa podcast without answering one real question with a follow-up to it, and that is, what's your greatest failure? And the follow-up <laughs> is, what did you learn from it? Because I'm not here to make people feel bad about what they did, but to draw a point, our point on the Biz Sherpa podcast is to inspire people to step on the path of business ownership yeah. and to give them tools to help them be more successful. As such, we learn, we sometimes learn the most from the failures that we face as business owners. And what we learn from that can be a treasure trove of information to those who want to start that they may not face that same challenge. Yeah. So, so I kind of answered this one. I partially answered this one a little bit earlier in the show. So the, the biggest failure I had was, was losing that business. I, I was the CEO of a publicly traded software company at age 25. And, and when we lost that business, not only did I lose $11 million in a day and then lost the entire business, but my shareholders lost their investment and my employees lost jobs. And, and, um, and, and that was a huge failure of mine. If I was working really hard and I was doing a lot of things that were important, but looking back, right, I dealt dealing with a lot of HR issues and dealing with office space issues and, and a lot of things that a CEO should be doing. But if I had to do it over again, I would have locked myself in a room 
with my developers and my marketing team. And I wouldn't have come out until we had an amazing software product that my customers loved and that was generating profits for us. And I would not have let anything else distract me. And I was doing good things, but I was not doing the most important thing. And I know a lot of people think that focusing on money is evil. And, you know, they think that money is the root of all evil or whatever. And, and that's not what that scripture says, right? The love no, the of love, money is the right. root of all, all evil. And, and that's greed. But money provides for orphanages. Money provides the ability for businesses to, to pay salaries and give jobs to people. And, and because I did not focus enough on getting us to profitability fast enough, um, people lost their jobs. And, and shareholders lost their investments. And, and that was a horrible failure of mine. And, well, and sometimes there are circumstances beyond our control in the national economy that kind of led to speculation and right. may have scared off investment. But you bring up a great point. I, I love your point, And that is, and I have the Biz Sherpa scorecard to try to help people do this. What's the most important thing that's going to make the difference in the lives of my customers every day? And I want to be focused on that. You know, whether the lease gets renewed or not, I can delegate some of those things. But am I laser focused on getting my product or service rendered in the manner possible that it's reaching the customers? Because if it's doing that, profitability is right around the corner. I mean, it's a natural result of, of getting it into the right hands. So obsess over your customers is what you're saying. Yeah, obsess over that, but have a laser focus on that to make sure you're you're in front of them and your product is responding to their needs or solving a problem. And then the math of profitability tends to take care of itself very shortly after that. And I think, I think there's a couple of stages that that entrepreneur goes through pre profitability. The entrepreneur really doesn't have the luxury of focusing on anything other than those things that will get him to profitability. Right. Once, once he gets to profitability, he can, he can entertain a lot more things and explore a lot more things, but uh, he has to stay laser focused on taking care of the customers so he can get to profitability. Yeah, I love that. Well, Nathan, I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm excited about Monetization Nation. I love the concept. I like your philosophy on tectonic shifts. And I think your podcast, your YouTube channel, your book's going to make a big difference in a lot of lives. And I look forward to watching that because everything I've watched you do has been and brought a lot of success and happiness to other people. So I, I'm grateful you take the time to be on our show today. Thank you for letting me be here today. Be sure to go to our website to access the resources related to this episode at www.bizsherpa.co. If you enjoyed this show, tell your friends about us and be sure to rate our podcast. Craig would like to hear from you, so share your thoughts in the Facebook community at bizsherpa.co. Follow us on Twitter at bizsherpa underscore co and on Instagram at bizsherpa.co.